It is dangerous to be Christian in our midst. It is dangerous to be truly Catholic. It is practically illegal to be an authentic Christian here in our country because out of necessity, the world around us is rooted in an established disorder in which the mere proclamation of the gospel becomes subversive. What happens is that a priest or a simple Christian who practices his or her faith according to the basic and simple guidelines of Jesus' message must live faithfully between two demanding pillars, the revealed word of God and the people, the same people, the great majority, the marginalized, the sick who cry out, those who are enslaved, those on the margins of culture, 60% illiterate, those who are alienated in a thousand ways, those who have been living in a feudal system for centuries. In some places in our country, they do not own their land nor their lives. They must climb on the conicast trees. Not even those belong to them, not even the conicast trees. The Chiltoda birds can fly up the trees and build their nests high in the branches. The poor Salvadoran is a slave to this land which belongs to the Lord, according to the Bible. This man is indeed poor. The statistics for our little country are dreadful. We already said that in the country, in this country, there exists a fake democracy in name only. A lot is said. Mouths are filled with democracy. The power of the people is the power of a minority, not of the people. Let's not fool ourselves. The statistics for our country are dreadful in terms of public health, culture, crime rate, subsistence of the majority of the population, and possession of the land. We cover it all up with false hypocrisy, with magnificent deeds. Woe to you hypocrites who pay lip service and call yourselves Catholic. Inside you are nothing but evil filth. You are Cain's, and you crucify the Lord when he goes by the name of Manuel, the name of Luis, the name of Chabela, the name of the humble field worker. Our people are hungry for the real God and are hungry for bread. Those are the words of blessed Rutilio Grande, martyr of the Society of Jesus. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. And we're back with an episode on liberation Christology with a special guest, Father Dr. John Teedy of the Society of Jesus, professor of systematic theology at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Holding a doctorate from Notre Dame, John specializes in Latin American and liberation theologies. His first book is Remembering Oscar Romero and the Martyrs of El Salvador, A Cloud of Witnesses. And his second for forthcoming book, uh, certainly of special interest to me, is St. Oscar Romero's Theological Wellspring, Ignacio Eacaria S.J. We often think of Romero's influence on Eacaria, but T.D. shows how also Eacaria's theology influenced Romero. 
TD will offer an overview of liberationist Christology in our interview episode, but he'll also share the story of Rutilio Grande, who was beatified by Pope Francis in January of this year, 2022. Following the interview with John, I'll share some additional insights on liberationist Christology from Carlos Bravo's essay, Jesus of Nazareth, Christ the Liberator, from Mysterium Liberationis. Thanks for joining. Let's get right to it. John, welcome to the Liberation Theology Podcast. It's great to be with you. And as we begin our sort of two-part conversation about Christology and liberation theology, and also the story of Rutilio Grande following the beatification of Rutilio Grande just about a week ago, maybe we can begin with a little bit about yourself. So could you tell us about yourself, John, and how you got into liberation theology? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, it's great to be with you. My name is Father John Tede. I'm an associate professor of theology at Marquette University, and my specialties are Christology and liberation theology. Uh, I'm a Jesuit of the Upper Midwest Province, originally from Minnesota, and I think what first uh, sparked my interest in liberation theology was when the Society of Jesus sent me to study philosophy in Santiago, Chile. I spent uh, two years there and some time as well in Bolivia for language learning, but I was able to learn about liberation theology. I had a course which included Ignacio Correa, Juan Luis Segundo, and Gustavo Gutierrez during theology, and that really sparked my interest in liberation theology. And then again, in theology, there were courses there, and I did a directed readings uh, about liberation theology. And again, in doctoral studies, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to the University of Notre Dame I studied with Matt Ashley and worked on my dissertation under him, main focus being the Christology of John Sabrino, but also had the chance to take a couple of courses with Gustavo Gutierrez and serve as his teaching assistant for one year. So that really steeped me in liberation theology in, in general and uh, created quite a passion for the subject. And before we get into Christology and liberation theology in particular, it might be helpful for us to have a sense of what is Christology for someone who's not familiar with that term. What do we mean when we say Christology? So Christology is, simply put, the study of Christ. So to learn about the various mysteries of the person of Jesus Christ, certainly a foundational section of that has to come from the creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Council of Chalcedon, which asserted both the humanity and the divinity of Christ, one person in two natures, but all of the mysteries that might be associated with the person of, of Jesus Christ, the incarnation incarnation, the crucifixion, the ascension, etc. Excellent. So for liberation theologians, who is Christ? And how have different liberation theologians thought of Christ? 
I think that um, some of the misunderstandings about liberation theologians come from this area. And I, I think the one thing that I would like to say, and we might look at this further in uh, other questions that you'll that you will ask me, but there is nothing that's unorthodox about the way that liberation theologians look at the study of, of Jesus Christ. So they're not going to propose uh, anything that is new or unorthodox. They certainly believe that teaching that Jesus Christ was one person and two natures, both human and divine. I think what liberation theologians want us to think about is the humanity of Jesus, and especially focusing on the historical Jesus project, which started in the early 20th century to think about uh, the historic, what, what it meant to be a person at Jesus' time, looking at the, the history at that time, and knowing that Jesus was a person in history, so a real person, somebody that we can relate to. I think the other thing that liberation theologians try to stress is that Christ had humble roots, that he was born in a manger, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was from a family of slender means, so that this uh, message that Jesus Christ came to bring is for all people, the poor, the rich, all walks of society. And what would be some of the live questions that folks who study liberationist Christology might be talking about today? If one were to open up academic journals that might be talking about liberationist Christology, what would people be discussing? I think that theologians today, in some ways, have said that the questions that were initially raised by liberation theology have not been answered. Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, you know, is going to release a, a follow-up to his 1971 book, The Theology of Liberation, and you know, in some ways, his point will be that the same questions that we had uh, 40, 50 years ago are still uh, are still there today. How do we tell the poor that God loves them? Or how do, how do the poor understand that uh, God loves them? How do we as a church reach out to all people in our church, uh, not just those of influence, but those that are on the margins? So the Christological questions that are associated with that are making sure to understand that Jesus Christ was a, a real person, that we can, uh, it's, Jesus is knowable, Jesus is, is, uh, is touched uh, and that those mysteries uh, can be studied by everyone. Um, I think in uh, sometimes liberation theologians get accused of overemphasizing the incarnation, uh, that moment when Christ becomes flesh in the person of, of Jesus. And I think in some ways, there's still a lot of uh, writings in liberation theology that center on that moment, that that is a, a focal point in the in the in history, that it's a, a theophany, a time when God intersects directly with human history, and to you know, really assert that that is an important moment. But in some ways, those uh, those initial impulses of liberation theology to make sure that Jesus is knowable, Jesus is somebody that can still make an impact on our life and on our world today uh, are important aspects of a liberation Christology. 
Can you talk about the impact that a Christology could have? And so I wonder, why is Christology something that is important? What, what difference does liberationist Christology make in the lives of Christians in Latin America and in the struggle for the liberation of the poor in, in Latin America? How does Christology relate to people's everyday life and their struggles and their faith? Well, I think when you look at our faith, the person of Jesus Christ is still the the most central part in many ways of our of our Christian faith in general. So whether we're in North America, South America, uh, Central America, Jesus is going to be uh, an important part of our of our faith. I think the the challenge uh, for today in Latin America is still getting the message of Jesus Christ out. Uh, We tend to think of Latin America as being a very Catholic or a very Christian continent. Uh, But the reality is, with the many voices that we have, the the many, the cacophony in some ways in our postmodern world of messages that are out there, we forget uh, that some people still have not heard this saving message of Jesus Christ. So in some ways, uh, the recent documents like Apartheidita, the most recent uh, bishops uh, conference in Latin America, talk about a new evangelization, that there are uh, young people and different sectors in Latin America that still uh, have not received this message of uh, the saving person of Jesus Christ. So I think that there is... uh, still evangelization work that needs to be done, and in some ways still uh, Vatican II has not reached all areas of Latin America, and that this there has to be a re-evangelization uh, as well. Person of Jesus Christ is the message of Jesus Christ is still uh, a relevant one and one that continues to be that we need to continue to preach in our world today. And you spoke, John, maybe kind of by way of a follow-up question about the person of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ. And I know that in theology, this is a debate that is had among some Christian theologians about the precise relationship between the person of Jesus and the message of Jesus, and whether is it principally that Christianity is bringing people to the person of Jesus Christ or Christianity is perpetuating the message of Jesus Christ or, of course, a combination of these things with each other. And how might liberation theologians kind of approach that question of the relationship between the person of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ? Some treat this question a little bit like the chicken and the egg. You know, did the message of Jesus Christ, was it pre-existent or did it come only with the person of, of Jesus Christ? I would say that most liberation theologians center on that incarnational moment when Jesus is born to say that that is really the the, the moment which is uh, tied to the message and the initiation of the kingdom of God here on earth, that it's through the person of Jesus Christ that that kingdom is both initiated um, and that that message uh, comes comes to fruition. Certainly, most liberation theologians would hold that the Word of God is present from the beginning and that the Word is made flesh, but that that saving message of Jesus comes about with the birth of the person of Jesus Christ. So for liberation theologians, that message is intimately linked and tied to the person of Jesus Christ. That might be a good way, too, to transition into our a conversation about Rutilio Grande in that 
Rutilio Grande certainly was a person who sought to convey the message of Jesus Christ to the people of Latin America, himself being a son of Latin America. And so who was Rutilio Grande? Could you share, John, the, a bit of the story of Rutilio Grande, where he came from, his journey, his vocational journey, and his work as well? Yeah, so Rutilio Grande was uh, a Jesuit priest from El Salvador. He was born in El Salvador. He was born in the rural area where he uh, ended up losing his his life. He met the Society of of Jesus in uh, in the course of his uh, youth and decided to enter the the Jesuits at a fairly early age, right after high school. Uh, he went through the normal Jesuit formation uh, and, and training, and I think for a time thought that he would uh, end up more on the academic side of theology. He was rector for a time at the seminary, in the, the major seminary in El Salvador, in San Salvador, I think what changed his life was to hear uh, at Medellin about uh, the different theologies that were uh, coming about at that time. Certainly, he would have known uh, about Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, Juan Luis Segundo, Korea, and others who were talking about a theology of, liber of liberation. And this led him to really want to work more directly with the poor. Um, at first, his superiors uh, didn't want to move him uh, because he was so highly effective. Um, even knowing uh, Oscar Romero before he was uh, made Archbishop of uh, of San Salvador. But after time, he really wanted to work directly with the poor and an evangelization uh, and to bring about a new strategy for evangelization with the poor. This eventually uh, would cost him his life because of the way that he so radically devoted his life um, to the poor. Um, and he was uh, killed on the road between El Pais Now and Aguilares uh, in March of 1977. And you spoke, John, of the transition in Rutilio Grande's life from academia to a direct accompaniment of the poor. And how did Rutilio Grande accompany the poor? What were some of the programs in which he worked? What was his approach towards accompaniment uh, of the poor? When Rutilio Grande first started thinking about working with the poor, the first thing that he did was to get some training uh, in this area. And he was uh, was familiar from his theology studies um, with some of the work that was going on in Belgium at Leuven, and particularly a, a new way, perhaps, to evangelize. In addition, he went up to uh, Colombia and Venezuela and saw some of the work that other Jesuits were doing there, particularly uh, their work more directly with the poor. And his idea was to come back to El Salvador and to perhaps have a, a different pastoral plan. So I think one of the things that Rutilio Grande uh, was most effective doing uh, was to implement this new pastoral plan, especially in the rural areas of El Salvador. So to think about working in with a team of Jesuits rather than perhaps uh, the traditional model of just having one pastor working on his own in, with a particular population. So he asked for Jesuits in formation to come out and to work with him, to sometimes even go door by door, asking people about their faith lives, encouraging them to, to come to church. And then I 
I think as well, once he got uh, to the rural area, he realized the great inequities between uh, rich and, and poor, the inequality, the uh, the fact that most campesinos at the time were not able to earn a living wage, perhaps not even have steady work throughout the year. And so he really became an advocate uh, for the poor to help them to try to improve their lives. I think this is one of the great realizations of Rutilio Grande, that it's hard to preach about the gospel when people don't have enough to eat. And so he was very uh, concerned about the life and the, the general health of the people in the, the campos and the, in the rural areas of, of El Salvador and wanting to make sure that he also spoke out against some of the injustices that they were facing at the time. And I can tell, John, that Rutilio Grande is a source of inspiration for you. I know, at least in your Twitter, you have the hashtag Rutilio Grande, um, um, as well as many other uh, Latin American martyrs. I wonder how has Rutilio Grande been a part of your Christian and Jesuit life? What does Rutilio Grande mean to you, and how do you find inspiration from Rutilio Grande in your own work? We were actually talking before the podcast began about going to El Salvador and some of the, the trips that you and I have both uh, made there. And I think one of the most impacting memories that I have is to is were my visits to Aguilares and to El Pais now and to literally walk along that road where Rutilio Grande was killed. The other big impact uh, for me, um, you know, not just seeing the, the church and the, the graves in the in the church where uh, where he's buried uh, was also to hear the story about Rutilio from the common people in the area. It was not uncommon to go into someone's home and see a picture of Rutilio Grande there. I mean, his memory was still preserved, and you know, some might even say that long before Rutilio was beatified in that region of El Salvador and in Central America, they've already considered him to be a saint. Uh, you know, he was a, a Jesuit who loved the poor, worked with the poor, and worked for the poor, and for that is is remembered. I think for me, too, as a theologian or someone who works more on the academic side, Rutilio Grande is a constant reminder for theology put into action. So we can talk about liberation theology, we can talk about Christology, but Rutilio Grande really walked the walk and talked the talk. I mean, he went to Aguilares at a time where it was dangerous uh, to live there. It was dangerous to speak out on behalf of the poor. He knew that he might be risking his life in advocating for the poor, and yet he chose to do that. Um, and he chose to, to not avoid any of the tough conversations, but to preach the gospel, to try to interpret that gospel message in that time period in El Salvador. So I find that inspiring. I also find that challenging uh, uh, for me personally, um, and it's a, a challenge to try to have more direct contact with the poor and not simply to, to write about these issues. And Rutilio Grande was beatified just about a week, a week and a half ago. And so what does it mean for the church in El Salvador and for the church in general that Rutilio Grande is being lifted up in this way? I wish that I would have been able to attend the beatification personally. It was one of my dreams to be uh, down there. 
uh, during this time with the pandemic that just was not uh, not possible at this time. But I I was able to watch uh, you know the the beatification process. It was uh, very interesting to me to see that you know not only did you have a large representation of bishops and archbishops from throughout Latin America and 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 even the world, uh, but they panned in at one point at the different people that were attending. And I think what you saw there is that not just people from, you know, the the people of influence in Salvadoran society, which they certainly were present, but just the regular people. Uh, I know from the Jesuits there that there were busloads of people that came down from the rural areas, um, and not just from the area where Rutilio Grande was killed. The north, from uh, the west, from the mountain region in um, in El Salvador, they came from long distances just to be there. So that center square where they hosted the beatification was filled with a wide variety of people. I think that speaks to the impact that Rutilio Grande had and still has today. In some ways, he is uh, uh, he will be hopefully one day a saint of the people. And uh, his message, I think, still has resonance today. You mentioned violence, um, which certainly was a part of Salvadoran history at the time and still is there today. I think his famous homily talking about the Canes and the Abels of society still rings true. Uh, in one of his final homilies, he talked about, why are we killing our innocent brothers and sisters? Why are we? Why are some people of influence in society acting like, like Cain, uh, that ancient biblical uh, story? And I think that message is still true today. Well, it might not be you know, happening in direct uh, ways of, of repression, that violence is is still present. And I present, and I, I think that uh, Rutilio Grande, his message would still be the same. Why are some of us killing uh, our brothers and and sisters on the margins of society? And you know, message that Jesus Christ brought of love for our neighbor is one that still needs to be preached today. John, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on Christology and on Rutilio Grande. And I wonder, before we end our conversation, if you might share a bit about the work that you're currently doing in liberation theology. You have a book that's about to come out. What will that be discussing? And what else are you researching at this time that you would want to share with the audience? My imagination is still captivated in many ways by some of these Christological questions that we uh, spoke about uh, today. But I've also started to uh, read more and think more about the impact of Archbishop Oscar Romero, uh, who was assassinated in 1980, and uh, the work of Ignacio Correa and his death in 1989. So what I'm trying to work on right now is more of a connection between Romero and Ea Korea and to look at how Ea Korea may have influenced Romero and vice versa. So my next book will look at uh, some of these questions, these points of connection to look at Romero as uh, perhaps from a more theological lens um, to realize that he was pastor. He doesn't have a lot of theological uh, writings, but his homilies are really a treasure trove uh, of, of theological ideas so that in some ways we might think of, uh, of 
Romero from a more theological uh, perspective, and that in some ways, Aya Korea helped provide some of these uh, theological ideas that, and, and others that that, uh, that Romero was was trying to utilize and incorporate into his homilies and pastoral letters and other writings. That really does sound fascinating, and I look forward to reading that when when it comes out. So thank you, John, for joining us with the Liberation Theology Podcast, and we wish you well, and hopefully we can have another conversation again soon. As Thanks, David. It was a pleasure to be here today. So following that incredible introductory interview with John Titi on liberationist Christology, I want to offer some insights from Carlos Bravo's essay, Jesus of Nazareth, Christ the Liberator, from our text, Mysterium Liberationis. And Bravo, at the beginning of that essay, has this wonderful quote that really parses out where the Christian faith comes from and how we express it in theology. He says, quote, Christian faith references three histories. A, the present history. B, the founding history, that of Jesus. And C, mediated by the history of the ecclesial community and is an experience of life before a reflection on life, end quote. So we, he, we see here three intersecting histories, the present, the founding past, and then the ecclesial past. And it's something that I have brought up as I discuss La Fragua, our Jesuit theater in Honduras, and as I discuss uh, liberation theology in general, which would be that Oftentimes in Christianity, we think that there are two Testaments. There's the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. There's the New Testament, the Christian-specific uh, Scriptures. But that in liberation theology, we might say that there are three Testaments. There's the Hebrew Scriptures, there's the Christian Scriptures, and there's also church history, which is still being written in the present, that God is certainly active in ancient times. God was active in the time of Jesus in a special way, but that God's work continues in history. The Holy Spirit is with us. Jesus is with us to the end of the age. And so we have to pay attention to how God has been shaping the trajectory of the history of the church and also how God is present now. And I notice there that in Bravo's three histories, he puts the present history first, because that is primarily where human beings encounter God. We start with our present experience, and certainly informing that present experience and helping us to reflect on that present experience is that deep, never-ending well of revelation in terms of the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures. And also the fact that we are not the first people that God has spoken to, but rather there is a rich tradition within our Christian heritage of private revelation and of God's action in history. And not only that, but God also works outside of the church 
through grace in all peoples in all times. So we want to pay attention to what we can learn from that has history, but never forgetting that our task is to act now. And so that should also be how we view Christ and how is Christ operating today, of course, mediated by the history of how theologians have understood Christ and also that fount, which is the Christian scriptures themselves, which speak directly about Christ's action in history. Continuing on, we have Carlos Bravo saying, quote, In Latin America, we believe in Jesus as Son of God, Lord of history, liberating Messiah. But we have to explain the content of those titles, because they mean different things from the world of the conquistador and from the death of the Indian from the White House and from Nicaragua, end quote. So we have the importance that we talked about in how liberation theologians understand and interpret the Bible. The sense that the Bible is primarily meant, as the gospel is primarily meant, for the poor. I have come to bring glad tidings to the poor, liberation to captives. And so it is true. <laughs> When Carlos Bravo says that Jesus as Son of God, Jesus as Lord of History, Jesus as Liberating Messiah, has generally different meanings, depending on who is claiming that title, Lord of History. What does it mean when those who colonized the United States claiming manifest destiny that the United States from sea to shining sea was given to Europe for the sake of colonization by the power of God for the spreading of Christianity, seeing in that movement the Lord of history versus someone in Latin America who accepts Enrique Dussel's interpretation of church history in which there's church collaboration with the process of colonization. There's also some church collaboration in the process of independence from Spain, Portugal, and then there's also the process of independence from neo-colonization, Latin American people shaping history for themselves, inspired by the mission of Jesus Christ. Very different conceptions of history and very different conceptions of how God is active in that history, shaping it depending on one's perspective. Same thing, liberating Messiah. What does that mean? For many people, liberating Messiah means uh, Jesus Christ liberates us from sin. There is a sin salvation mentality. Avoid sin, uh, do good. This is done at the personal level. And while it's certainly true, that's an important dimension of our faith, avoiding personal sin. What does it mean also for the Latin American poor liberating Messiah, where it is not simply a question of avoiding personal sin, but a liberation also from a system that has amassed huge amounts of wealth for the rich and for the global north and has brought suffering, uh, wage slavery, and exploitation of natural resources for the poor. So, and, and here's why I think it is so important to consider and to read liberation theologians like Rutilio Grande that we've talked about today, who are liberation theologians in the pastoral sense. They have applied a critique of capitalism, of 
the exploitation of the farm worker, but have done so in a pastoral way as someone who is a native Salvadoran. So what does it mean that uh, we have a liberating Messiah in the Sandinista movement? What does it mean that there's a liberating Messiah for the wealthy who may see that liberation in a purely spiritualized sense and will defend that to the core. I think the testing run for that is certainly the uh, camel uh, passing through the eye of the needle. The rich person will immediately want to point out that anything is is possible for God, and so therefore the rich person can pass through the eye of the needle, whereas for the person who may be poor who looks at that passage with common sense, they would say that is impossible. And maybe if it is possible, it involves getting rid of one's wealth, as Jesus had asked the rich young man to do. So maybe it is possible for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God, but in order to do so, they must become poor by virtue of their solidarity with the poor. Then Bravo poses a double test of fidelity to the gospel, saying that if we want to determine whether a given action, position, belief is consonant with the gospel, it has to pass through this double test. One, is it faithful to Jesus as Jesus is revealed to us in scripture? Also, is it faithful to the concrete pueblo, people? whose faith expresses and conveys what it means to be faithful to Jesus Christ and that these people are the Christ of today. So this is a great point. Uh, I remember that we were on a call recently with Open House Scotland, and we were having a discussion precisely of this topic, that good liberation theology is close to the scriptures. One will see, reading the texts of liberation theologians, just how much uh, scripture is quoted, how much liberation theology participates in that ressourcement, return to the original sources, which are scripture and the patristics. But also, that test is not sufficient because the word of God is living and active. And so if one does not have a sense of the concrete struggles of the people of today, one's theology will be lacking. So there's the Jesus criterion and there's the Pueblo criterion. And I would say there is some there's a lot of debate within liberation theology on this question. What is the extent to which one needs to take into account the cultural context of Jesus Christ? One has, we've spoken about this in previous episodes, that someone like Juan Luis Segundo really wants to place within that tension of the Jesus and Scripture criterion and the Pueblo criterion, wants to place more emphasis on the Pueblo criterion in the sense that he'll point to Something like Jesus kind of saying, why are you looking to me? Read the signs of the times. Look up into the sky and see whether it's going to rain or not. Look around you, and there is where you're going to find how God is calling you to act. Don't necessarily look immediately to me for all of the answers. We'll also point to a passage in Scripture wherein Jesus says that the, his disciples would do greater things than he would, and that they would have the Spirit within them, who would lead them into the fullness of the truth. So you have Jesus himself in Scripture maybe pointing uh, and reinforcing that position, that uh, even Jesus himself is saying that there is more beyond Jesus's precise historical actions. So Juan Luis Segundo would want to point in that direction. Certainly in Bravo's uh, essay, he seems to want to give more of a 
a balance there than than Juan Luis Segundo would in his writings that we've discussed. So there is a tension there. What is the extent to which Jesus is a model for action, given the historical differences in our times, and also given Jesus's comments on the importance of us paying attention to our surroundings in the present moment? Next, Bravo reminds us of the fact that all theology is partisan and comprometido, or committed, even when it aims to be neutral. It certainly got a little bit of a stir on the social media the other day when I had posted about liberation theology being good theology and that the alternative to liberation theology is oppression theology, which is bad theology. And it's a simplistic and uh, tautological point, but I think it really does illustrate something important, that if one is not doing liberation theology, if the struggle of the oppressed does not form in some central way part of one's theological thinking, then either one of two things is true. Either that topic is absent, and so there's just a a fake neutrality, which often ends up being a reinforcing of the status quo, or your theology is just plain consciously seeking to oppress different groups. And so It is certainly the case that I believe that liberation theology is scripturally the most accurate and the most persuasive way of interpreting the scriptures. But aside from that, we just have to say, if liberation theology is not, then what does that have to say of the discipline of theology itself? And Bravo uh, brings up that point. He then speaks of our interpretation of who Christ is as a series of three dialectical moments. Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrected one, and the movement of the followers. So we have also here, we can say that Jesus of Nazareth is standing in for that human historical Jesus. And so there we get a sense for how God acts in history. So Bravo, again, wants to point us to Jesus as a model for our action. If we want to understand how God acts in history, no better place to go than the person of Jesus. But any person's life could or could not be prophetic. One's life may or may not have the quote-unquote stamp of God's approval. And because not every historical person who lives is someone that we're going to want to follow. So there... Bravo says, it is the resurrection that offers divine confirmation of Jesus's mission and ministry. It is God saying to the world, this is my beloved son, and I'm going to not only say that, but I'm going to show it by raising this person from the dead demonstrating that this mission must continue, which is the third point, that the movement of the followers is also essential to Christology, because there we get a sense in the movement of the followers of how people who knew Jesus interpreted what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So that's why it's the texts of Paul, the Acts of the Apostles are incredibly important. And what do we see? That these early Christian communities are practicing Christianity in a radical way and the sharing of their resources in the redistribution of resources and in a radical practice of mercy and inclusion uh, that extends to all people's that all nations are united in one family of God. And Bravo says that if Jesus were a mere human being, if he had not 
been confirmed by the resurrection, then Christians, there would be no Christian obligation to follow Jesus, Jesus in a particular way. Jesus would have been potentially a prophet, but not a God human being. And if Jesus were only God, but not a human person, something akin to a superman, then we could not follow him because Jesus would be beyond us. The actions of Jesus would be so incredible and so powerful that we would not even know what it would be to follow Jesus. And there is the beauty of Jesus being a human person, and that all the more so do we get a sense for what it is to follow Jesus, because it's not following some ethereal divine being, it's following a man of flesh and bone. Then Bravo offers an analysis of Christology from three points of view, economics, politics, and religion. In economics, he brings us back to the essential point of Christianity, which is Jesus's attentiveness to the vital necessities of human material life. One reads through the scriptures, and I remember thinking throughout my early study of the scriptures, wow, a miracle story. Wow, another miracle story. Wow, another miracle story. And sometimes I just found those miracle stories so almost repetitive in a strange way. But I think that when one looks at those miracle stories, what Jesus is doing is restoring people to health, to a place where they're able to have food, able to have water, And so Jesus is attentive to the material needs of the people, and Jesus satisfies their material needs. Jesus places a great emphasis on sharing and on abundance, not abundance of inequality, but abundance for all. He places an emphasis on the mercy of God, that our basic human necessities should not be something that we earn through some sort of meritocracy, but should be something that we are freely given. We see in the economics of Jesus an egalitarian utopia. And this is a phrase, egalitarian utopia, that Bravo repeats also in his conception of Jesus' politics and his conception of Jesus on religion. But specifically on politics, there is an emphasis, almost an anarchic uh, emphasis, on the sovereignty of the Father that Jesus is pointing to God as standing above all political authority, almost as that Socratic-like figure who is going to say, I would rather stand for spirituality, for principles of justice, than obey that which is evil. You see Jesus in a disobedience of, of the status quo, there what is being said is, I do not accept the reigning political authorities. I obey God. And there's an inversion also of the conception of authority, that Jesus says that authority is not to be wielded over, that authority is not something for the strong to have to oppress the weak, but that true Christian authority is shown in service, in obediential power, that one would not wield authority like the pagans do, as Jesus says, in other words, as Caesar does but that authority, true authority, is in service to the people. Then on religion, Jesus, well known for breaking down laws of exclusion and impurity, those who were untouchable, 
those who would make one ritually unclean, those who are themselves ritually unclean, brought into community. And there, Jesus exposes the contradiction and hypocrisy of the center. The contradiction and the hypocrisy of the center, who profess to be the inheritors of the faithful promise that is given to Abraham, but who in some ways, some authorities in the time of Jesus used religion not as a principle of radical mercy and love, but as a kind of a stripping away of the poorest of the poor of their hope, reinforcing the exclusions of society. And so amidst all that, Jesus shows us a religion of fraternity, of sorority, of common love. Later, Bravo brings up the question of why does Jesus go to Jerusalem? And he answered this question by saying that there comes a time when one must offer a definitive confrontation of the center that excludes and oppresses. And so Jesus strategically chooses the Passover, the feast of Jewish liberation, for him to be this new Moses who goes to Pharaoh, goes to this center, and says, let my people go, and goes to the temple and overturns those tables of greed in the temple and sets off this chain of events that would bring Jesus into that fatal conflict with the state. And Bravo says that the moment arrives for renunciation, that Jesus chooses to act in a nonviolent way. And he does so in order to demonstrate, in Bravo's interpretation, the homicidal nature of power. That one can see clearly in the example of Jesus, this full, pure, human, divine love in which there is no mix of oppression, no mix of violence. There is this smoldering wick that he would not quench. There is the reed that he would bend, but he would not break. In order to demonstrate very clearly for the world to see that as long as the structures exist in society in the way that they do, the end result is the death of the poor and the death of the leaders of the poor. Also in Jesus's passion practice, we see in that last supper, a breaking and a sharing of the bread, a foreshadowing of that egalitarian utopia that we spoke of, that also involves a breaking and a sharing of ourselves that we would imitate, as Jesus says in that last supper discord, discourse, that we would love as he loves, that we would lay down our lives for our friends, that we would do this in remembrance of me, share our lives together in a banquet of love. And Bravo brings up the point of the liturgy, the contemporary liter liturgy, that we see in that liturgy a wholly subversive act. We cannot separate the Last Supper from the Passion. These two things run together. And we see that in Jesus's approach. Uh, his Last Supper discourse in John is about his going to the Father and the promise of the Spirit to come. His Last Supper discourse is spoken of as the Last Supper that a prisoner would have before his or her execution. 
when Jesus says that this wine will not be had again until the kingdom of God, he's saying, I am going to die. The blood that I will shed is the wine that we are drinking in this meal. The bread that we are sharing is my body, my body which will be torn open on the cross. And so when we celebrate the Last Supper at Mass in our liturgies, we need to keep this in mind, that that act must remain and preserve its subversive dimension. And Bravo says that the subversive memory of Jesus is betrayed anew every time that it's ritualized to make it, quote, adorable end quote, instead of disquieting and transformative. And I've shared on this podcast moments of the Mass, that I have seen the Mass celebrated in the streets of protest in Honduras, where a table is set up on a table that otherwise would be used for the making of tortillas or the distribution of soup to protesters. That table is used as an altar, and a Mass is celebrated in solidarity in the streets uh, with the poor who are blocking the passing of vehicles and equipment that would destroy the natural environment in a given area. And there are pastors and there are communities who celebrate the Mass in this disquieting and transformative way that invokes the memory of Jesus and Jesus' passion and the hope that comes from the total gift of oneself to the movement of liberation. And Bravo says that we may look at the cross and wonder about the silence of God. Why does God not intervene in this moment? Why does God allow Jesus to utter those difficult words of abandonment? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Bravo reminds us of a critical point, that it is not God, but humanity, who is responsible for the silence of the cross. And I think about that, and it does make me tremble with fear and with responsibility in the Kierkegaardian way, I suppose, that humanity killed Jesus Christ. Human society led to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we are not to then question God more so than we question humanity, as it was not God who put the nails into Jesus on that cross. It was not God who whipped Jesus as he was tied to a pole. It was not God who stripped Jesus naked. It was humanity. And so it is humanity that needs to be transformed, not God. And it's God who gives us the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit so that that transformation can take place. Near the conclusion of Bravo's essay, he gets into three traditional understandings of soteriology or kind of what the meaning is of Jesus taking away the sin of the world. How is it that we are saved? And he gives a reinterpretation of three terms associated with soteriology or the the science of salvation. The first is sacrifice, and I think we it's certainly the case that the scriptures interpret, you know, especially in Hebrews, but also in other places, Jesus's death on the cross and resurrection as a sacrifice, just as a paschal lamb may be sacrificed, so now uh, Jesus is sacrificed, and that that in some mystical way in the shedding of blood takes away sin. But Bravo wants to say that, you know, the deeper meaning of sacrifice is that of laying down one's life for others. And that truly the word sacrifice means to consecrate, to make holy, to make sacred, sacrifice, to make sacred. And so 
If that is the case, what Jesus demonstrates to us is that the holiest thing that one could do is to give one's very life for the liberation of the oppressed. Then there's the term satisfaction, that somehow in almost like a punishment of Jesus, that the debt that was owed by humanity to God was satisfied. But um, again, what the meaning of satisfaction really is, uh, when you get to the root of that word, would be to be carried out sufficiently, fact to do or to carry out and satis, you know, done sufficiently. And so Bravo calls up this point that it's not that God needs to be satisfied. Of course, God is not lacking in anything, so we don't need to satisfy God. There is no debt in God that needs to be paid as God is full. But there is a project for humanity and for history that has yet to be satisfied. That is the project of human solidarity. And that once more, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross shows us the way in which we can carry out sufficiently that plan that God has for humanity. That it's not about mending some kind of brokenness in God, but it's about mending a brokenness that we have with ourselves and a brokenness that that breaking apart has caused and alienating us from God. And so that is that which needs to be satisfied, that project that Jesus Christ begins and that we continue in history. Making up for what is lacking is precisely the term that Paul uses, that we in our own loving of each other would make up for what is lacking. Lacking, uh, in Christ. And I interpret that not to mean that there was something that Christ did wrong or that there's something that, you know, the sacrifice of the cross uh, does not address, but more so in the fact that the reality is that the reign of God has not reached its fulfillment. And so the human project has not been satisfied. And so it is our job in Christ to continue that mission. And then redemption. Again, redemption not seen as this price paid for our liberation, but redemption in the sense of all of us must pay a price when we make a commitment to the total liberation of humanity. That we do pay a, cr a price when we take positions that may be unpopular, when we work against the grain to transform institutions, to transform the church itself, to transform even deeply held political ways of proceeding, like the United States Constitution, when we challenge those things and expose the injustice there as a prophet does, we will pay a price. As Ea Korea said, no university that goes out there and stands with the poor, that works for the transformation of a community, that seeks to uplift, that university will face oppression because those who have power are not going to want to see their power distributed to others. And so there is a redemption in that sense, but it's almost a reverse redemption in the sense that the price that is to be paid is the risk that we take in aligning ourselves with the freedom of the poor. And at the very conclusion, Bravo brings up this incredible point. The following of Jesus is the following of his cause. We can say in an abstract sense, I love Jesus. I seek to follow Jesus. Jesus is my friend. And those things in a mystical level are very true for us. And there are times in prayer where I have felt that mystical connection, that many of us have felt that mystical connection to God, to the beyond, to Jesus. At the same time, Jesus Christ formed a church and Jesus Christ challenged a society. 
And so that cause, that liberation that Jesus seeks is a total one, to remove the alienation that we may have in our personal relationship with God, but also to remove the alienation that we have with one another, that we have within the very body of Christ, the church community, so that God would be all in all, and that that egalitarian utopia spoken of by Bravo would be incarnate as Jesus Christ became incarnate to share that project with us. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. We will continue next time with another dual episode in the sense that we will have a guest, Irene Hodgson, professor of Spanish at Xavier University, to share about Oscar Romero and her critique of the Oscar Romero movie, as well as some other commentary about her experiences as a professor in solidarity with Central America. And we'll also have an episode when we share on liberationist missiology. So in what sense is, how do we understand the process of evangelization of missionary work in the context of liberation theology? That will be an amazing episode, so look forward to that for sure. And we are moving, as I've shared on social media, to a different format in the sense that I have been recently missioned by the Society of Jesus to pursue a new apostolate, which will be studying theology in preparation for ordination at uh, the Centre Sev which is in Paris, France. And so in order to dedicate myself fully to that mission, and which involves learning French, which will not be uh, an easy task, I will be moving to an every other month format. We want the podcast to continue, and it very much so will continue, but it will continue in a new form of every other month. I do want to provide quality content, and I just know that it's going to take time for me to provide that quality content to the listenership in the new context of working in uh, and studying in Paris. But all of those things aside, let us close with a prayer. And I want to take the prayer that the Society of Jesus and the Church has given, a prayer of intercession to Rutilio Grande, so who is now a blessed in the Catholic Church and on the way to sainthood. So let us, as many people turn to Jesus with their needs. Uh, Let us turn also to Rutilio Grande, who exists in the body of Christ, to ask Rutilio Grande to intercede for our needs, as he did on earth when he interceded to God, to political authorities, economic authorities, on behalf of those in need, the poor. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, you instilled in your servant, Father Rutilio Grande of the Society of Jesus, love for your word, for the Eucharist, and for the evangelizing mission of the church among the poor. You granted him the gift of uniting himself to the passion of your son, Jesus Christ, through a martyr's death, together with his companions, Manuel and Nelson, when they were on their way to celebrate the holy sacrifice of the Mass. We thank you for their example and for the life of Rutilio, alongside his companions, Manuel and Nelson, and grant through their intercession the favors that we now ask of you. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.